In 2 Kings chapter number 2, let's begin there. We're going to go into 2 Kings chapter 4 and 2 Kings 6, but let's start with this. Three separate accounts, so listen carefully. 2 Kings chapter 2, verse 19, the Bible says, The men of the city, the city is Jericho, and they said to Elisha, Behold, the situation of this city is pleasant as my Lord sees, but the water is bad and the land is unfruitful. So Elisha says, Bring me a new bowl and put salt in it. So they brought it to him. Then he went to the spring of water and he threw salt in it and said, Thus says the Lord, I have healed this water. From now on, neither death nor miscarriage shall come from it. So the water has been healed to this day according to the word that Elisha spoke. All right, let's go to the next passage. 2 Kings chapter 4, verse 38. And Elisha came again to Gilgal when there was a famine in the land. So no food, not a lot anyway. And as the sons of the prophets were sitting before him, he said to his servant, set on the large pot and boil stew for the sons of the prophets. One of them went out in the field to gather herbs and found a wild vine and gathered from it his lap full of wild gourds or mushrooms and came and cut them up into the pot of stew, not knowing what they were. And they poured out some for the men to eat. But while they were eating of the stew, they cried out, Oh, man of God, there's death in the pot. And they could not eat it. Elisha said, Then bring flour. And he threw it into the pot and said, Pour some out for the men that they may eat. And there was no harm in the pot. Last passage, 2 Kings 6, 1 through 7. Now the sons of the prophets said to Elisha, See, the place where we dwell under your charge is too small for us. Let us go to the Jordan, and each of us there get a log, and let us make a place for us to dwell there. Elisha answered, Go. Then one of them said, Be pleased to go with your servants. And he said, I will go. So he went with them, and when they came to the Jordan, they cut down trees. But as one was felling a log or chopping down a tree, his axe head fell into the water, and he cried out, Alas, my master, it was borrowed. Then the man of God said, where did it fall? When he showed him the place, Elisha cut off a stick and threw it in there and made the iron float. And he said, take it up. So he reached out his hand and took it. All right, so when we think of miracles, we almost always, our minds invariably go to physical healings. And we're going to talk a lot about physical healings on the study of the life of Elisha because the dude dripped with miracles, all sorts of miracles. And I skipped chapter 4, but we will go in, uh, skip some of chapter 4 where there's some incredible work, but I'm going to actually make that into two separate messages. So tonight, we're moving not into the realm of physical healing, although it's the same God and the same power that does the physical healings that does these these miracles that reverse aspects of nature. We just read three accounts that are miracles that are not about physical bodies being touched or healed or the dead being raised, but they are actually miracles that show God sovereign over nature. Now, let me give you this. In the time that Elisha was living, there was a lot of false worship of a pagan god that had entered into Israel's life, this, this worship of this pagan god named Baal. We say Baal down in the south, so we'll just call him Baal. Baal was a pagan god, and he was the god of fertility. And there was a lot of crazy, really evil worship that went along with him, involving a lot of sexual immorality, because he was the god of fertility and the god who brought life to crops and the god who controlled the weather. 
And so when we look at these three things, God is doing at least one thing that I'm going to say right off the bat that he's doing. He's countering the false notion, the false worship of Baal. He's showing himself to be sovereign over nature, and he's showing that Baal can't produce the things that Israel wants him to produce, but God can. So very quickly, when we're thinking about miracles, what do you want to know about them? When we're looking at biblical miracles, this is not going to be up on your screens, just listen for a minute. Miracles are always redemptive in nature. Every miracle you're going to find in Scripture does one of a number of things that are closely related. They restore or repair or raise, restore, repair, or raise what is ruined or broken or dead. Every miracle has the element of returning something to the original design that God had for that thing. The second thing is miracles are intended for specific good at a specific time for a specific people. God's not just up there showing spiritual principles. He actually cares about the people that are receiving the miracles. It's very personal to the Lord. So he's not just trying to teach us a lesson about his power. He's actually moving compassion towards people and saying, I love you. I have a specific love for you. I see a specific need in your life, and I have a specific endowment. And so that motivates me. Um, when when my family needs a miracle. And we do. We need a healing in my family that has not manifested yet. And so that motivates me. I know my God cares about me and my wife and my children. And so it motivates me to say, he's not just big God up there somewhere running the cosmos, but he's my Abba. He's my father. And his miracles are meant for us as his children. And so they're very specific. They do meet practical needs. And so we should never shy away when we've come to the end of our resources. We should never shy away for pressing in confidently and and as children saying, Abba, help me. Now, let me go ahead and answer something. Not every miracle that we want or need or feel we need, not every one of them is affirmed. There have been times where I've prayed for miracles that didn't happen. And so that's an assault on our faith. But I want you to know, no miracle that ever Uh, didn't ever manifest, none of those failure to manifest miracles impugn the character of God. There's an element of wisdom when he gives a miracle. There's also an element of wisdom when he withholds the miracle, but only those that press on in faith will ever encounter that wisdom. You have to press on to him. We actually want him more than we want the miracle. The third thing is this, the miracles, especially in the Old Testament, they're prophetic. They have a prophetic element to it. So all miracles remind us That God is constantly, omnisciently aware that things are not as they should be down here. Now, we would like for him to snap his fingers. He got big, omnipotent fingers, you know, immeasurable fingers. Boom, just put everything in order. That's what we want him to do because that makes sense to us. But God is smarter than you. He's smarter than me. His ways are not my ways. His ways are not your ways. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are God's ways higher than our ways. And so miracles... And the full restoration, all miracles point to the coming day where God is going to restore the cosmos to their original design. Romans chapter 8, verses 20, 21, 22 tell us that not only are we wanting him to come back and and longing for uh, redemption, the full redemption, but all of creation, the created order is groaning, wanting the Lord to come and restore it. That's an amazing statement from, from the Word of God. And so every miracle is pointing us towards the day where the Lord is going to restore everything. And so one of the beautiful motivators in the, in the Christian life is that God's putting everything back together in His way and His time. But there, it, I can promise you this. At the end of the age when all things are restored and, the, and Satan is banished and 
the new heavens and the new earth are manifest and visible, we're all going to elevate our worship and praise because we're going to see what he has been preparing for the bride of Christ through all of the ages. And every miracle that takes place down here is one of God's ways, and even the ones in the scripture, just reminding us, it's coming. Children, it's coming. Keep walking with me. It's coming. I will not fail to do what I have promised. It's coming. And, and there are times where we, we see those little breakthroughs on earth. I'll never forget. And, man, I haven't even gotten to my first point tonight. Let's just see what happens. I'll never forget. This was not too terribly long. This was around 2004. And I had been kind of in the closet with the gifts. I was pastoring a denominational church that didn't affirm the gifts. But I believed in all of them. But I didn't have anybody to talk to because... I was in the closet with gifts. And so I just remember walking into a hospital to see a newborn that was dying. And I had never read a book on healing. I had never been to a healing conference. I just walked in and I met with the parents and something just shifted in my heart as I approached that little uh, NICU unit and the baby in there, he's got all this stuff on him. And I just immediately, as I looked at him, I, I just knew he was about to be healed. And I didn't know what to do because his mom and dad didn't necessarily feel the way I felt. And so this is grace. I just literally looked at the dad and I said, can y'all leave? <laughs> I said, I I'd like to pray over your son and just, I'd, I'd feel better if I could just pray over him by myself. It was a little awkward, but the mom and dad left. And I didn't, it wasn't a, it was none of that. It was just, I, did, I couldn't even touch him. It was just laying my hand on the outside of that thing. And I just spoke words. I don't even know what I said. It was broken. It was awkward. It was probably weak, but I just knew it. I, I, I don't want to give too much of the information because his parents still live in the area. But let me just say this. I left that room, and I've never done this, and I probably will never do this again, but there was such a, a gift, a turning of faith in that moment. I looked at the, the father, and I said, your son's been healed. And I left, and I went home, and I thought, what did I just do? And the Lord just reassured me. And sure enough, it was a medical impossibility. God healed that baby right there in there. Now, yeah, we can give him the glory because nobody else is taking credit for it. Well, here's the thing, though. I, I want to make sure you understand. Not every story, and most of the time when I've gone into scenes like that, that hasn't happened. But what I'm trying to say is this. Um, Elisha's God is your God. We, haven't got a, we don't have a diminished version of the God of Elisha, nor do we have an enhanced version of the God of Elisha. We have the same God. And so he wants to train us and teach us on some of these things with not the physical miracles of healing, but the, um, the miracles revolving around the natural order. So let, let's just go back to Jericho and let's go back to the, the bad water. So let's talk about experiencing, transforming your environment. And God's the transformer. You're the recipient. However, when God begins to move in us and we learn how to flow and operate with him, we actually become agents of transformation. So I do want to make this about the Lord today, but I also want you to realize that, yeah, God often works through people. And so you can not only be the transformed, but you can become a transformer in the sense of God working through you. So let's talk about experiencing this delivering cleanse. This is simple stuff, and I just want to put it all together so it, it just challenges us to believe in the greatness of God. So first of all, he comes to the city of Jericho 
And now we're going to see him looking beneath the surface. In verse number 19, the men of the city are welcoming the new prophet in town, Elisha. He's done one public miracle. He's coming to town. And they say, Elisha, as you can see, the situation right here in the city looks really good. Behold, the situation is pleasant as my Lord sees, but... The water is bad and the land is unfruitful. And so Jericho was a pretty place. Now, it's got a lot of history that I don't have time to go into. God actually told Israel, never rebuild the city of Jericho after they destroyed it. And some Yahoo rebuilt it. It cost him greatly. A curse came upon his family. And the land had moved in and out of these stages of blessing and cursing historically. And now we see that the, the water, the well, the spring that was the main water source in the city had become foul. And so, listen, that was their life source. And so the crops were getting spoiled. Seems to be some indication that the animals that were drinking the water, the livestock, were dying. And there even seems to be a hint that the water was poisonous to the extent that women who were expecting children could not carry them to full term because it even mentions this uh, sadness of miscarriage in there. And so here's the thing. The, the statement that they made was, as your eye can see, Elisha, everything looks good, but we need to tell you at the core, there's something really bad going on here. And so Elisha is brought into this situation, and I love this. I love the fact that already there was such a touch of God on Elisha's life as he has served Elijah for 10 years almost, and Elijah was now caught up into heaven in the whirlwind, and Elisha is the representative of God, and the people actually expected him to be, to be able to operate in the power of God to do something. What an awesome time to live when the, the citizenry expected the people of God to walk in a level of anointing that could solve problems where no natural means could do it. And so they didn't have, a, they didn't have you know, Roto-Rooter. They couldn't clean out the well. They didn't have a, a system of, sophisticated system of irrigation. So they're coming to Elisha and they're saying, the city's messed up. And the implication is, can you do something about it? Can you help us here? Well, look in verse 20 and 21, because I, I just, I love the way Elisha operates. He engages in what I call unspectacular actions. So he says to them, bring me a new bowl and put salt in it. So here we have obedience. They brought it to him. And he goes to the spring of water and Elisha throws the salt in it. Now, this is where I think you and I can grow together in this thing. So if I'm in the mood for a miracle... I'm thinking a little bit more like Naaman. Do y'all remember Naaman, Naaman from the same book? Naaman needed to be healed. And so when it was time for his healing, Elisha didn't even get off the couch. He sent his servant out there and said, go tell him to dip in the Jordan River seven times and he'll come up clean and he won't be a leper anymore. And Naaman got offended. Naaman's like, dip myself in the river. I thought you'd come out here and you would say something powerful over me and wave your hand over me. So there's something in our hearts that naturally assumes that when God's going to do something supernatural, it also has to be sensationalized. And so we miss a lot of stuff because we don't have the, enough faith sometimes to do simple steps of obedience because they seem unspectacular. So what does Elisha do? Elisha says, I want a new bowl. I want an uncontaminated vessel, and I want you to put some salt in it. And salt had historical um, implications for Israel. They had salt covenants. They had salt sacrifices. And so salt represents a lot of different things in Scripture. One of them is grace. And so this, this unproven bowl, very much like Elisha, by the way, he was the unproven prophet, has salt put in it. And Elisha walks over to the mouth of the well, of the mouth of the spring, and he just throws the salt in. That's it. No abracadabra, 
No dancing, no, nobody strumming on the harp and you know, conjuring up great anthemic praise or anything like that. It's a bowl and it's a salt, but, but I noticed two things. They did exactly what he told them to do, and they didn't ask questions, and they, they just did what they could. I'll say this before moving on. Sometimes our breakthroughs are on the back end of us very simply obeying the most simple instructions. God doesn't tend to entrust breakthrough to people that don't know how to obey. And sometimes when we're really wanting a breakthrough, it may seem like he's got us off here doing something else that doesn't have anything to do with the breakthrough. I mean, I don't know what they thought might have solved the bad water problem, but I'm sure nobody sat there that day talking about, you know, I bet if we could get a bowl and we could get some salt in it and we just dump a little salt in the, that it would solve the whole water problem. It, it was some form of a word of knowledge, some form of supernatural communication that was spoken to a man who could discern the voice of the Lord. And so when that prophecy or that word was given, those instructions were given, they just obeyed. So look in verse 21 into verse 22. Now, I love this. Elisha did one thing. He declared a positive outcome over the situation. So Elisha says, thus says the Lord. He's giving a prophetic word directly from the Lord. I have healed this water. From now on, neither death nor miscarriage shall come from it. In verse 22, the, the one who is writing the book of 2 Kings adds this historical footnote. At the time he's writing it, it says, the water's been healed to this very day according to the word that Elisha spoke. This is pretty important, friends. Again, it's not spectacular. The result is transformational, but the process looks mundane. And sometimes we're assuming that when we need a spectacular, amazing, supernatural, impossible, humanly impossible breakthrough, we assume that the process is going to be dun, 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 boom. And sometimes it's not. And so what Elisha does is he obeys what he heard from the Lord, dumping in the salt, and then he gets a word from the Lord and he declares it. He declares the positive outcome over the impossible situation. And he says, the Lord is saying right now that from this point forward, these waters are healed. You can drink it. You can irrigate with it. You can farm with it. You can feed it to your, give it to your livestock. Everything's good from this day forward and it'll never, ever come back again. And there you are sometime later and the writer says, yeah, and he was right. We, we still to this day are able to go to the waters of Jericho and drink. Some people, and I've, I've said this many times, you know, it's, it's kind of a flippant thing, but the name it and claim it movement. Y- y'all remember back in the 80s and the 90s, a lot of you will, where, and even really some of the early 2000s, there was a little bit over the top. Everything was name it and claim it, and most of the stuff that was getting named and claimed was material goods and material wealth. And that lost a, left a bad taste in a lot of people's mouth. And so now, people, if you, de- you make a declaration, if you refuse to listen to the evil report, I have a good friend who got a terrible diagnosis just a couple of days ago, and we happened to bump into each other an hour after he got it, and the doctor gave him this diagnosis diagnosis and he just looked at the doctor and he said no I no I don't and she said you've got this he said no and she looked at him no let me show you the blood test you've got this he goes I don't receive that and and I thought to myself well good for you and what is he going to do he's going to take the wise course of action too he's going to go get a second opinion but the point is is he didn't crumble the moment somebody told them the bad news. Why? Because there are times, friends, when we recognize that the power of life and death are in the tongue, we speak a lot of death over situations that never would have died had we spoken life over them. 
And so what Elisha did is he spoke life over the situation. Now, some of you may not be comfortable with that, but I always like to ask people, well, what's the alternative? You want to walk around declaring doom all the time? I mean, literally, there are things, there are miracles that I believe that are missed all the time because we fail to consider a positive outcome because we go by what we see initially, and sometimes we don't even press in to get the heart of God on this thing. And, and listen, God is not uh, afraid to let bad news find you. Matter of fact, that's how he deepens and strengthens our soul and our faith at times, by allowing the, the scary to find us. But he never abandons us in it. And yet the temptation can be, oh no, the water is going to be poisonous forever. And yet then God will send the word of faith. And, and somebody says, hey, listen, the Lord's just taking care of this. Now, you've got an opportunity to believe him or not. How did they know if they really believed the word that Elisha gave? Uh, Elisha gave? You know how they knew? They either drank the water or they didn't. You see, my friends, it's real easy to get in here and sing about faith and talk about faith, but at some point, you've got to stick your cup in the well and have a sip. And that's when you know whether or not you're believing it. So, all right, well, I'm almost out of time. We've, already got, we've only gotten through the first uh, miracle. So let's get into the second one. When we're moving from this delivering cleanse, and you say, well, Jeff, what are we supposed to learn from that? I don't know. We'll just go to the next one, and we'll kind of, <laughs> we'll kind of cram them all together. Uh, power for spiritual nourishment. I have always loved the story we're about to, to, to read. So let's look at this. First of all, let's start out with Elisha again and his great faith in verse 38. So Elisha now comes to Gilgal. And notice this. The whole context is there's a famine in the land. And he's with the sons of the prophets. They're sitting before him. And Elisha says to Gehazi, his servant, or Gehazi, Set on the large pot and boil stew for the sons of the prophets. Why do I call this great faith? Well, a couple of things. Two things that don't go together. When there's a famine in the land, you typically don't throw an extravagant feast. So there's a famine. There's really not enough food to spare. And Elisha is looking at the sons of the prophets. He's spending time in a prophetic context. He's with people. He's training, just like he was trained by um, Elijah. And so he looks at them, and just it seems to be just his heart going out to them. He's like, I want to feed these boys. And so he, he calls Gehazi, and he says, go find the biggest pot. There's a lot of guys. Go find the biggest pot. Let's make some stew. And so they decide to do it, and everybody's getting in on it. It's like a conga line and salsa, and they're all happy because they're going to get to eat some stew, and Elisha's going to pay for it all. And so Gehazi is supposed to get everything going, and Gehazi says to one of the sons of the prophet, I want you to go out there, and I want you to get some spices. So look at this. Look in verse 39. Here comes the intense trouble, verse 39. So one of these guys goes out to the field to gather the herbs, and he finds a wild vine. And he gathered uh, from it his lap full of wild gourds. They're probably mushrooms of some sort. And he came and he cut them up into the pot of stew, not knowing what they were. That's really bad because his ignorance is about to put everybody in trouble. And so they poured out some of the stew to eat. But while they're eating the stew, so they're eating it, they cry out, oh, man of God, there's death in the pot. And they had to stop eating it. So it doesn't look like anybody died, but picture the scene with me. They're finally getting a big meal. It's a celebratory atmosphere. They're with Elisha. And, and so, you know, somebody, Gehazi, I don't know why he did it. It was his job to cook the stew and get everything done, but he delegated to the wrong guy. And so the wrong guy goes out there and he doesn't know, don't eat these mushrooms. And so the guy comes back 
and he's cutting up all the good herbs and everything. He's getting all the veggies ready. And in it are these poisonous mushrooms. And so they're cutting them up. And as they're eating, they're starting to eat all this stuff. Somebody that knows what's going on, somebody who knows he's better outdoorsman. The guy who cut up the gourds is probably like me, a suburbanite that doesn't have any any need to be out in the field but then you got some 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 guy who's some outdoorsman he's tasting these mushrooms he's like and he's looking around in the bowl he's like oh my goodness we're all about to die this and because remember they, they didn't have the minute clinic down at cvs they didn't have penicillin they didn't have poison control they couldn't dial 911 they're gonna die and they all know that they're gonna die because they have ingested the poisonous mushrooms and so it's it's it this great faith of elisha didn't immunize them from intense trouble. I want you to remember that because some of you walk very closely with the Lord. Some of you hear his voice. Some of you know and can trace his hand. Some of you have, have a, a uni, unified rhythm of heart with God and, and you, you're pursuing him and you love him and you're hungering after him and yet you keep finding seasons of trouble. And when the enemy witnesses this happening he'll just dispatch a couple of uh, junior accusers into your life and tell you everything you've ever done wrong and accuse god to you and you to god and you to you and to, to wreck you to where you're thinking maybe I'm, I'm doing something wrong before the lord well elisha wasn't elisha was wanting to bless the people and yet in the midst of that act of faith to get this big meal going in the midst of a famine trusting god to provide this disaster takes place. Well, go a little further with me. Verse 41, look at Elisha. So they're panicking, and he's not. He said, then bring flour. And he gets the flour, and he threw it into the pot and said, it's almost like, there, pour some out for the men that they may eat. And then the footnote is, there was no harm in the pot. Now, again, here you have somebody that's walking with the Lord that can confidently speak what the Lord is speaking. We don't read anything about an angel descending and saying, Elisha, it's okay. The Father has healed it. Tell him to eat. It is an instantaneous either awareness of what God has done, or it even could be, and I'll, I'll just stretch some of you here, it even could be that Elisha is so operating in the power of the Holy Spirit that what he speaks comes to pass. You say, Jeff, I don't know if I believe in that. Well, I'm going to tell you something. That's so real. It's so, so real. It's not casual. God's not flippant about that. But I'm going to tell you something. You can speak things into being when you are walking with the Lord. There are times where you will have the gift of faith with a word of knowledge, and, and just it comes out, and it is. It's a done deal. So I don't know exactly what transpired here, but I do know this. They got back to their meal. Now, watch this. Not only did Elisha have faith, but somebody else had faith in that scene too. You know who it is? It's the first guy to take the second bite. You got the bowl. You see the guy over there, he's cramping, he's sick to his stomach, and he's not having a good time. You're like, Elisha, you watched Elisha throw in some flour. Now, how many of you know that flour does not have the ability to take all poison out of gourds or mushrooms? That's just not science. And so Elisha just throws it in there. He says, go ahead, eat. It's good. Go ahead. And I'm thinking, I just, I'm not trying to be funny. I'm just trying to be real because sometimes we romanticize the Bible. You know, everybody pulls out their spoon and like, we shall eat now. I, I bet there's a guy sitting there and he's got his spoon. He's looking at his friend. He's like, 
Yeah, go ahead, man. He said it's good. Go ahead. But somebody had to say, and take that, that second bite. Um, you know, this isn't exactly deep theology here. I, I'm, I'm just trying to, to get us to see that sometimes we ingest things in the kingdom that are poisonous to our soul. A lot of us were taught some garbage by well-intending people who were, were wrong. And it gets in us. And sometimes it's so in us that we don't know how we can ever break off of it. And God reserves the right to work through any means that he chooses to cleanse those things that may have weakened or poisoned our soul or even threatened the vitality of our spiritual life. And sometimes God will do it in such a casual way that all he's wanting you to do is to step into it, to take that second bite, to go at it again. And so there are times in your journey where you're going to recognize maybe years have been wasted, Maybe errors have been promoted because you regurgitated what people had taught you. Maybe you learned behavior or traits. You ingested something that began to flow out of your life, and you're looking back, and you're like, man, that was really toxic. And if you're not careful, you can be bound to that, that season of toxicity. Or you can just trust that the blood of Jesus Christ has cleansed you from all manner of sin. You can trust that the, the Holy Spirit in you is, is, the, is the same Holy Spirit that was operating in Elisha. And, or you can actually do this. You can actually get really robust in your faith and say, no matter what I've ingested spiritually, no matter what I have done in my past that was toxic, no matter what I believed or even propagated to other people, no matter what, I know by the grace of God through the blood of Jesus that I am to Today, right now is acceptable to the father as jesus christ his only son is you see my friends until we come to the place where we recognize that the completion that jesus has secured for us doesn't get us kind of like i think a lot of christians don't live in the light of their pardon they live like they're on parole or probation with the father and so no no, no parolee is going to come boldly before the throne of grace to obtain what they need but a son and a daughter will and the Lord will choose means just to throw a little flour in there and sap up the poison. Listen, I, I, wanna, I, just, I'm, I know I'm a little over, all over the map here, but I, I just want to encourage you to don't give place for a minute to any voice that tries to tell you you are what you were. Whether it's a human voice, a demonic voice, or your own fallen conscience that you wrestle with. How many of you, don't raise your hand because that'd be embarrassing. I'll, I'll give my testimony. How many of you have had to do like the psalmist did? You know the psalmist preached to himself? He said, soul, why are you so disquieted? Put your hope in God. I mean, the psalmist was talking to his own soul. I've had to do that. He said, Jeff, what are you walking around shameful for? You're a son of the king. You're a child of God. Your sins are washed away by the blood of Jesus. You ingested some poison back in the day, but that's not who you are anymore. God has thrown in the flour, the bread of life, and you are free. And sometimes you just got to get radical about your confession uh, over your own life. And what happens is that all of a sudden you become a candidate to take that second bite and you start enjoying the feast that God has prepared for you. You see, fear will keep you out of the feast. That's why people settle for religion. People settle for religion because fear makes them afraid to view their relationship with God as a feast. Well, that's irreverent. That's irreverent. God's not into that. My friends, listen. 
Heaven's going to be loud. Heaven's going to be festive. Heaven's going to be jamming. Yes, there's going to be reverence. There's going to be all sorts of quietude and everything. But when you study worship in the Bible, you, I don't care who you are. You've got to do hermeneutic gymnastics and bend over backwards to come away with any other conclusion that the praise and the worship and the celebration and glory is anything other than loud, passionate, and intense. But religion will tell you, shh, you might wake up God with all that shouting. You might irritate the Father with that dancing. You might offend Peter, Paul, and James with your hands up in the air or whatever it is. And the reality is, is listen, if God's given a feast, I'm going to eat. If, if God wants celebration, I don't want to help God try, uh, try to help God be holy by saying, well, we don't really celebrate. Uh, friends, I, I just believe that when we come to that place where we recognize he's taken the toxicity out of us, you're not perfect yet. You're not glorified yet. But you're pardoned and you're really welcome in his presence. He really, really, really wants you close because he loves you. And, and he doesn't want you to be afraid. And he doesn't want you to be shamed. It's going to be a glorious day. And I believe it will happen before Jesus returns where we see a revival where shame is absolutely removed from the people of God. It's one of the enemy's favorite weapons. He chains us up. He feeds us the poisonous mushroom of the memories of all we did wrong or all that was done to us. And it promotes this toxicity of shame. And Jesus just busts in sometimes and says, that's enough. And he throws something on us and he says, now feast with me. It's all good. So last thing, I'm actually going to get to finish this tonight. I'm only going to keep you about a little bit over. So here we go. This is the one I really wanted to get to. This is my favorite. The uh, other part of transformation is not just the spiritual nourishment and transforming what's on the inside of you so that you know who you are. It's not only this delivering cleanse like Elisha did with the spring water. By the way, don't forget, they had to take a drink to know that, it, that the cleansing had happened of the spring. And they had to take a bite in order to know that God had done a miracle with the meat. This, don't be a spectator. You're going to have to actually engage in it for it to be real to you. There's risk. Faith always compare, uh, contains a component of risk. If there's no risk, you're not doing it by faith. You can do it by obedience without risk. But listen, faith means there's something, some component about, a, about it that isn't guaranteed in the natural so it's, it's not guaranteed. It's not signed on the dotted line. You're actually stepping into something or onto something that you, in the natural, you're not sure, is this going to hold me? Is this going to keep me? And so there's always a step of faith. I'm really sensing that tonight. I'm just sensing that some of you are, are, are like right on the threshold and you're really wanting to move forward and, and God's smiling at you, but he's saying, I'm not going to move a step closer until you move one step closer to me. And that's the way it works, by the way. We draw near to him. He draws near to us. Now, he always made the first move, but there are times and seasons and different situations in life where we're saying, God, do something, and God's saying, take the second bite. Lord, do something. Lord said, take the second bite. Lord, we really, really need you to move. Um, to move. Lord says, lift up your spoon, scoop some out, and take the second bite. I'm going to bless you. And so sometimes it's with caution, sometimes it's with uncertainty, but let it always be with honor. Even if your hand's shaking when you're about to take the second bite, you know what I'm talking about, right? Whatever the step of faith is, it's okay if your hand shakes, just get the spoon in there, lift up what he's telling you to lift up, and take it in. And so then we get down to this, okay? Entrance into the next chapter. And this is so speaking to me in this season and others in this room. 
Watch this. So we're flash forwarding. Water's healed. The stew is healed. Everybody's drunk. Every, not everybody's drunk. Everybody has drinked. Man, I've really been messing up. I've said some really horrible things in the pulpit this year just from a, a, a twisted tongue. Thank God for back-end editing of sermons. So entrance into the next chapter. Here we go. Verses 1 through 4 of 2 Kings chapter 6. Watch the desire for increase. So the sons of the prophets say to Elisha, See or look, the place where we dwell under your charge is too small for us. Let's go to the Jordan and each of us there... Uh, get a log, and let's make for us a place to dwell there. And Elisha said, go on, do it. And one of them said, why don't you go with us? Be pleased to go with your servants. And he said, I will go. And so he went with them, and when they came to the Jordan, they cut down trees. So this is, again, this is a happy moment. This is the school of the prophets is growing. The number of people that are, are, are coming into a prophetic element of what God is doing is growing to the extent that there's a place where they're living together, they're learning together, they're growing together. We don't have a whole lot of details in Scripture about what exactly went on with the school of the prophets, but it was kind of a big deal. And so these, these young men are being trained in some form for prophetic ministry, and they're growing, so God's touching people. God's calling people, God's stirring people, God's speaking. You know, uh, righteousness is beginning to be exalted in the land, even though there's been pagan kings and queens dominating the landscape. God's, God's moving. It just reminds me of where you're living right now. You know, we're sobered by what we see going on. But I'm going to tell you something. I am not afraid. Absolutely not afraid, nor should you be. The Bible says that as the end of the age approaches, things are not going to get better in the world. Now, they can become better for us, and we can be agents of transformation. But it actually says evil people are going to wax worse and worse, that natural love is going to die, and violence is going to increase, and disobedience. Aren't you glad you came tonight? I'm encouraging you. All of this stuff is going to be going on at the end of the age. But, my friends, we are not of this world. We're in the world. And so the one who lives in us is greater than the one who's operating the world. So I'm seeing all of this. I'm seeing the devil move. But let me tell you what's really got my attention, the fact that God's moving. I'm seeing people, um, the Lord is doing stuff right now in this community that if, if the curtain was peeled back all the way, we'd be astounded at what the Lord is doing. So what, why is he doing all this? Because he's not going to let the enemy keep doing all that he does and God not bring down the hammer on that stuff eventually. So he's stirring people just like he was in Elisha's day and it's growing and so they have this desire for increase. They're saying, God's doing something great. We need a greater capacity as, at the school of the prophets to experience all that he's doing. So Elisha says, okay, I'll sign off for your plan. Let's go into a building program. Let's go build some new dormitories. And so they go down by the Jordan River, and they're cutting down trees down there. They may have been building like some riverfront property down there where they're going to be. I don't know what's going on. But they're down there cutting down trees. And so it's an awesome kind of season God's moving. The school is growing. There's hope abounding. And everybody's energized and putting their hands to a project. But again, right in the midst of all the good stuff, watch something happen. And this seems really small. And I love the fact that it's in the Bible because it lets me know that God's not just concerned with the big things, but he's actually concerned with the little fellow that lost his axe in the river. Look at it. Verse number five. This discouraging breakdown occurs. As one was chopping down a tree or felling a log... Whatever that means. His axe head fell into the water, and he cried out, Oh, no! Master Elisha! My axe! And it's not even mine! I borrowed it! 
And Elisha, just steady Eddie. The guy just doesn't, he doesn't panic. He didn't panic at the messed up spring of water. He didn't panic over the pot of stew, and he's not going to panic this guy. Uh, and so he says, well, where did you lose it? All right, just, just pause with me here for a minute. So, like, I think the Iron Age was, like, 1,300 years before Christ. And this is taking place about 300 years after that. And so you got to remember, it's, they didn't have Ace Hardware. They didn't have Home Depot. They didn't have, you know, anywhere to just go, oh, we'll just go pick up another axe. I mean, it'd be basically the equivalent of you borrowing your friend's Corvette and wrapping it around a pole, and you're like, I don't have any insurance. There's no way this guy can pay back his friend for the axe head. And so he's, he's panicking. He's flipping out. But I love the fact that in the midst of something like this, which is comparatively small to the other stuff that we've read, again, look at what happens. They go to the agent of transformation. These are prophets going to Elisha the prophet. And, and they just have seen enough of God on his life, and they, they're thinking, this guy's thinking, he can help me. Can, can I just linger there for a moment? I, I, I really want all of us to get to the place where our, you're the first person they look to when a crisis hits because God's all over you. Your coworkers, our families, you know, our kids. I, I just believe that God is so willing to meet you at the level you're pressing in and to put oil all over that. And so when, when you're that person at work, and some of you are, when you're that person in, in the community or in the family, that when trouble hits, you're the one they call. So Elisha is that guy, and I just love it. He's like, okay, calm down, son. Where did your ax go? I know it's in the water. Where did it go? Um, just very quickly, we're going to drop some stuff in life. Forgive the forced analogy there, but there's been stuff that we've lost in life, stuff that through error, maybe even sin, we've forfeited that we can't get it back on our own. And there's been a whole lot of stuff that's been taken, lost, stolen, forfeited. And I think we need to leave room in our relationship with the Lord just to believe that he knows where it is. I'm not even talking about when you lose your keys and your wallet. That's me every day. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about when you go through seasons of loss or seasons where people take things from you or seasons through your own stumbling, there's spillage, you just forfeited stuff. And, and I just love the fact that the Lord says, let's go back to the point where you drop the ax head. Let's start in that moment of loss. And then he begins to work in supernatural ways to bring something whole and good out of that season that caused you maybe to panic. So look at the end of verse 6 into verse 7. Again, consider the miraculous remedy. So the, the younger prophet shows him the place in the water where, where the axe head flew off and sunk. And so Elisha cuts off a stick because obviously that's what you do when iron sinks. You throw, and he threw it in there. He just throws it in there and made the iron float. And he said, take it up. And so he reached out his hand and took it. 
This is what I call naturally supernatural. Everything that Elisha did in these three passages, he's chill. It's so different than what we see today. Do you know why a lot of people don't believe in this stuff? It's because, man, they've seen it plastered on YouTube and on Google and on the TV screens for decades now, and, and everything's hyped up. You know, you got pastors waving capes and, you know, just doing all sorts of crazy stuff. And, and listen, God can work through that too, but the point is, is that the world sees that and they're just like, Psh. you know, it just seems weird. What would happen if we just operated with not a whole lot of fanfare and just we're content to let all the glory go to God. And what would happen if we all matured to the place where we actually expected God to make iron float? Expected God to take cornmeal and, and cure, cure a disease in the stew? That, that's what I'm saying. And I'm going to tell you what some of you are wrestling with right now. You're wrestling with a default loud inner voice that, that is just telling you, God doesn't do that. That's Bible stuff. God doesn't do that. God doesn't do that. If God did that, I would have seen that. And I would just kind of rebut that, and I would say, well, the reason why you haven't seen that is because you don't believe God does that. Friends, we typically don't get to experience what we're opposed to. And so there's got to be a time in our life where we say, if iron needs to float in order for breakthrough to happen, God can take a stick and make the iron float. Uh, By the way, I know that defies science. And we're not going to be bowing at the throne of science in heaven. We're going to be bowing before the one who created the natural order and who loves to invade it with the supernatural order. And so, listen, there's going to be people in your life as you are wanting to get back what is lost, and they're probably going to tell you, hey, uh, and they love you, and they're, they're leading you, and they're helping you. They, they may, there may come a point where they ask you to do something that is not reasonable. It doesn't make sense. But if that person has the oil of God on them like Elisha does, you might just want to listen. Because I'm, I, I know that when you throw wood in water, it does not make iron float. By the way, the Hebrew term there is not simply that it floated up. It literally talks about it moved on the water. The image is this, is that the dude takes his axe and he's hammering away and on a stroke back, the axe head flies over his shoulder, lands in the depths of the Jordan. So it's not on the shore where he can just reach in and get it. He has no idea where it is. And Elisha just takes a stick and throws it in. The Hebrew indicates not that it simply just came up, but that it came up and swam. You had a hard time with the first way I read it. That literally, it's almost like whistling for your dog. And that, and it just moved on. You say, well, Jeff, how did that happen? Well, God did it. God did it. And, and, and if we still stumble over that, friends, then we, we're the ones who've lost our axe head. We're the ones that have dropped something really important. What is it? It's our confidence in a supernatural God. So I don't have a nice, neat, nice, tidy way to apply this to your life, but I do have a challenge for all of us. Expect God to do what you don't see him do. Expect God to do exceeding abundantly above anything that you have ever asked or thought. You see, Elisha was told by Elijah, you've asked a hard thing when Elisha said, I want a double portion of your spirit on me. Elisha had something on his life that stretched people's faith. And what I don't want to ever be, and God help me, I I mean this. Be careful as I pray this. 
May the Lord remove me from places of influence if the effect coming from my life is that I shrink your faith. I don't, I don't have any right to lead people if the end result is if I make God smaller to you and I shrink your faith to where you can put it in your little coat pocket and walk around and pull it out, wave it with all the other religious people. I, wanna, I want our faith to stretch. I believe sitting out here tonight that there are people that God literally is just saying, I am so ready to do some things in your life. And I'll even eliminate the voice of doubt. And I'll take away the voice of shame. And everything that you've lost or had stolen from you or forfeited, I will make those things to swim to you in other ways that you've never imagined. And I'm going to do it through means that don't make any sense and that you couldn't have predicted, you couldn't have analyzed, that you couldn't have scripted. And just because you don't understand it doesn't mean that it can't happen. Adrian Rogers, an old Southern Baptist preacher who's in glory worshiping tonight, said this, I, and he had the richest bass voice of any preacher you'll ever hear, Tennessean, and he's, and he's from Florida and pastored in Tennessee. And he said, I wouldn't have any confidence in a God I could fully understand, and that has lived with me all of my days. If you can fully understand everything that God is doing, you haven't gone far enough yet. And so may we all grow into this. And so I'm going to ask you to stand. We're going to go. We're done. I, when I step away from the final time from the notes, you're on your way out of here. And so I'll stay right here. Um, why don't you just do this just to avoid distraction? I'm going to take two minutes with you. Just close your eyes for a minute. I don't want you to raise your hand. I don't need to know who you are. Raise it in your heart if this appeals to you. Lord, I want my faith to be stretched. Lord, I want to believe you for more than I've ever believed you. Lord, I want the iron to float and swim. Lord, I want to have faith to ask the hard things. So for everybody whose hands up in their heart, in the name of Jesus Christ, for his glory, I bless you with the will to pursue what you want. It's not enough to want it. It's easy to want it. Risk it. This is your season to start risking it. I bind the devil who's trying to keep you in fear so you'll play it safe. And I call on the Lord to release every resource, supernatural and natural, human, divine, and angelic in your life that you'll see in this season very soon an elevation of the activity of God in your life and that you will not make it flashy or flamboyant, but as you rejoice in your heart, you'll be able to reveal a maturity that says, well, of course I'm seeing this. This is my God. So in the name of Jesus, let it be, Father. Amen. Amen.